0: Today, we continue looking back on our ancestry, our family tree of faith, in our Lenten sermon series. Last week, we met Moses and friends in the wilderness where they asked that question, is God among us or not? This week, we'll jump ahead a few generations to when we first meet David, the boy who will become Israel's second king. Friends, let us listen now for a word from God coming from 1 Samuel chapter 16, verses 1 through 8. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. But Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears about it, he will kill me. The Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one whom I indicate. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed stands before us now. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and had set him to pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, the Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then had Shema pass by, but Samuel said, nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel. But Samuel said to him, the Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, are these all the sons you have? They're still the youngest, Jesse answered. He's tending the sheep. Samuel said, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent for him and had him brought in. He was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. This This is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. Samuel then went to Ramah. Friends, this is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. God, who calls out to us, call us into your space this day. Bring us near to you with hearts that are still, with hearts that are at peace, with minds that are open, and with hands that are ready to receive your good news. In your holy name we pray. Amen. So we like royalty. Even though the U.S. declared its independence from Great Britain on July 4th in 1776, we still very much get sucked into the drama and the fairy tale that is royalty. That's evident when 29.19 million people watched Meghan and Harry's wedding in May of 2018. That's evidenced, too, by the 17 million people that tuned in live last Sunday night, and as of Thursday afternoon, it's estimated that over 50 million people total have watched or streamed Oprah's interview with Meghan and Harry, where they told their part in the story, where they were so desperate to leave their roles as senior members of the royal family and the struggle that they had to do so. 50 million people Watch that part of the royal family be told. 50 million. We love the royal family. While being royal, being king meant something very different than what it has meant for Meghan and Harry in the nature near east. The people of Israel wanted a king kind of like them. They wanted a king to love, to lead them just like all of the other nations of their time had. Israel's story of wanting a king starts with a woman named Hannah. Hannah has longed for a child, but for years and years she did not have one. She begged God and promised to give her child to God if only she could have a child. She bore Samuel and followed through with her promise, and Samuel became one of the last great judges in the time of the judges. And Samuel became God's kingmaker. The people of Israel begged God for a king. They longed to be led like the nations that surrounded them, ruled by a king, a human leader they could see and touch, someone that would lead them into battle. And after hearing their cries for a king, God finally answers their request. God directs Samuel, God's kingmaker, to fill his horn with oil and to go anoint this man, Saul, as king. Saul was tall, Saul was handsome, and Saul was strong. Saul looked like a warrior. And for a time, Saul led the people of Israel with God's favor. But it wasn't long before Saul fell out of favor with God. When Saul did a sacrifice without a priest, and Saul stopped listening to God. So Samuel mourns over this fact that God has turned away from Saul. Samuel, after all, was the very one that anointed Saul as God's chosen king. And then God turned away. I think I'd be a little devastated over that too. But that's where we meet Samuel today. Distraught over Saul. And this is what brings us to David. God asked Samuel how much longer he is going to mourn over Saul. Before telling him to get up, to fill his horn, and to go anoint a new king. God tells Samuel that we are going to Bethlehem. I think like most humans would probably do, Samuel says, God, just how am I going to do that? You want me to go out and anoint another king while the one that I already anointed is still alive? You, you know he'll probably kill me, right? But God doesn't even acknowledge Samuel's complaint. God just tells him to go to Bethlehem to invite Jesse to make a sacrifice and to trust that God will tell Samuel who the next king is. I think Samuel knows that there's probably not much point in arguing anymore with God, so he goes. When he arrives in Bethlehem, Jesse parades his eldest son in front of Samuel, Eliab. Samuel sees his tall stature and his strength. Samuel sees a warrior king, And he thinks to himself, surely this is who I am supposed to anoint. But he quickly hears God saying to him, no, no, no. Don't get distracted by his height or his tall stature. See, you, you humans, you see with your eyes. But I, God, I can see what is in hearts. And it's not him. So Jesse parades his other sons in front of Saul, and each time God says no. It's kind of like that end of Cinderella scene where the prince and his aide are at the evil stepmother's house and the two stepsisters have tried on the slippers and they don't fit. And then the prince says to the stepmother, are you sure you have no more daughters? And then Cinderella comes breezing in and the shoe fits. It's kind of like that. So Samuel asks Jesse, do you have any more sons? Because at this point, he knows it's one of Jesse's sons. So Jesse says that there is one more. There is the shepherd of the family, and he is out in the field with the sheep. Jesse sends for his youngest son, and when he finally arrives, Samuel hears God say to him, This one, this is the one I want you to anoint. Pour the oil upon his head. Samuel pours out the oil on his head, and the newly anointed king of Israel is revealed as David. David the shepherd. David wasn't tall in stature, and he was not what people expected to be God's chosen king of Israel. But yet, that is who God chose. God saw David's heart. And God deemed it good. We know that David wasn't exactly a flawless leader. He wasn't a perfect human by any means. In fact, a few chapters later, he'll see a woman bathing on a roof and then send her husband to die in battle so they can be together. So clearly, he is not perfect. And I think God knew that he wasn't perfect. But God looked at his heart and God still anoints him as king. Then David becomes the central figure in our family tree of faith. Yet most of the Psalms are attributed to David, and Mary and Joseph are returning to Bethlehem, the city of David, when Jesus is born. David becomes the king that God loves. David is God's chosen one. And this this is the part of the story that I find most interesting when I think about our ancestry DNA with David. It's not that God chooses who we humans might not suspect, although I think that's true in a lot of instances. But it's that God sees what's in our hearts. God, knowing that we are not perfect, God still calls us good. God still takes us and our hearts. And calls them good. God will write our names on the family tree of faith. And call them good. Still. Because God sees what's on our hearts. And God calls us good. Even though we will surely mess up. You know, this thought, this revelation is one that I think we would do well to hold on to. Especially when it comes to thinking about Issues and things that are so big in life that we feel like we can't possibly do anything about. For the past few weeks, several in our church have been having these conversations together about issues of race alongside our own experience of waking up to our own race, our own whiteness. In this book that we've been using to anchor our conversations, Waking Up White, Debbie Irving details her own experiences waking up to her whiteness. She recounts several of these stories where she was doing her very, very best to be culturally sensitive and to make people of color feel welcomed and feel like they belong in whatever situation she was in. But time and time again, she says the wrong thing. She wonders if her intentions were pure. She tells this one story where she's at a conference about diversity and she is warned ahead of time that she is likely to be in the minority. The first workshop she attends is watching a documentary. This documentary was made by professionals of color and it tells the story of this kind of racial discrimination and discomfort that they faced in their lives. Now after the documentary was over, there was a bit of a Q and A session And Debbie stood up, and she said that she needed more information, more details, to understand their experiences. Now, to you and me, that seems pretty normal, right? But to the room that Debbie was in, a room full of people who didn't look much like her, and who had not had a similar experience to her, Debbie said the very wrong thing. Debbie didn't realize that by asking for more details that she told the people she was in the room with that their stories, their experiences were not valid. And this book that we're using is really full of these mess-up moments where she says and does the wrong thing. But it's also full of her reflections on what could have been a better way. I don't know if Debbie is a woman of faith or not, but the fact that she has compiled her stories of these moments when she has woken up to her whiteness, these instances where even in her most serious and well-informed attempts to affirm people of color, she misses the mark. That she's compiled all of these stories into a book that millions of people across the country have read, and even our denomination and our church are using to have conversations about what race means in our society. That feels an awful lot like God anointing Debbie, even though God knew that she would mess up along the way. Friends, know that God sees what is in our hearts. And though we are certainly not perfect followers all the time, God calls us anyway. On these great family trees of our faith that include people like Moses and David and Abraham and Sarah and Adam and Eve, and even Jesus Christ, God writes our names too. And God calls us good, knowing that we too will certainly mess up along the way. Isn't that a gift to be included in such a tree?